Good morning, everybody. My name is Holly Worsley. I am one of the elders at Lake Forest. And for those of you um, that I know, it's good to be with you this morning. And for those of you that I don't, it's so good to be with you this morning. I'm going to say a prayer for us and we're going to jump right in. Oh, Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would encourage our hearts. We ask that you would remind us that you see our small acts of faithfulness. You see us turning to you, are questioning who you are, are looking for you in our day-to-day lives. Lord, would you use the story of the people that have gone before us to teach us who you are and, and, and how you interact with your people? God, would you use these words to teach our minds and our hearts and our souls and to draw you just a little bit closer to yourself? We ask and pray that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, a mom tells a story that has become one of my favorites. Uh, Bill and I have four children, and she tells the story that she had a house full of kids and that a buddy of hers um, was uh, not married and just did tons of traveling. And her friend had just gotten back from this Europe trip, and she called up a group of their friends and she said, hey, Let's get together. I want to tell you about my trip and just visit and, and be together. And so this mom, right, she's, she hasn't showered. She's got dishes piled up in the sink. You know, she's beat tired. And she kind of throws her hair up in a ponytail and she goes. And all the other moms are kind of dressed up and they're showered and they look like they have it all together. And um, then her friend, who just got back from Europe, hands her this present. And she opens it up and it's a book about the great cathedrals of Europe. And at first she was kind of confused. It was all about how they were built. But then she read the introduction to the book and it said this, for it said, dear friend, for my admiration and love for how you build great cathedrals in your home when no one's looking. See, the book was about the massive cathedrals like Notre Dame in, in Europe. And about how generations and generations of men had spent their entire lives start working on a cathedral that they would never see finished because it took several hundred years to build each of them. And so a man could spend his entire lifetime working on a cathedral and never see it finished. In particular, there was this one story about a man whose entire job was to work on the wooden beams in the cathedral, his entire life. And he spent one week for a while etching a picture of a dove on one of the beams. And his friend came to him eventually and said, dude, what are you doing? Like, nobody's ever going to see that. Why are you making that so beautiful? Just get on with your work. And he said this. He said, God sees. God sees. See, that's the series that we're in, friends. We're in a series where we're talking about a God who calls us to small acts of faithfulness in our day-to-day lives. A God who uses our small acts of faithfulness to, to ordain the unfolding of his story. He sees and he celebrates when you and I faithfully do small acts of obedience to him in this life. So today we're going to look at a young woman in the beginning of her story. And so let me tell you where God's people are as we pick up our story. And just be forewarned, we're going to go fast through the entire book of Exodus and look at these little moments 
these little acts of faithfulness and how God honors them. Well, God's people are in Egypt. They're foreigners in a land that's not their own. Um, they came to Egypt as a family of 70, and God in his providence sent one of their family ahead of them. It was Joseph. You may have heard his story. And, and Joseph served a, a godless leader, and he rose through the ranks in Egypt until he was second in command of all of Egypt. And when he was at that power level, Pharaoh has a dream, and nobody can interpret the dream. But Joseph had been given the gift of God of interpreting dreams. And so Joseph goes to him, and he correctly, with God's help and interpretation, interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And because he did that, because he told Pharaoh that a great famine was going to come, Egypt was not only saved from, uh, from starvation, but that's when Egypt actually became a great empire. And so when, when the famine hit and Joseph's family was starving, he called them to come to Egypt. And Pharaoh basically said, if you're a friend of Joseph's, you're a friend of mine. And he gave these Hebrew people, God's people, we now call them the Israelites, he gave them a land called Goshen. And they lived there for a long time free. But then this happened. Joseph got old and died and Pharaoh got old and died. And the new Pharaoh looked around at all these people, these Hebrews who were now not 70 people now, but hundreds of thousands of people now. And he said, you know what? That's a problem because the Hittites up north are, are looking to invade our land. And if those Hebrews were to join with the Hittites, well, they could defeat us. And so overnight, the Pharaoh took this entire people group these Hebrews that we now call the Israelites. And they went from freedom and luxury to slavery overnight. It, the Pharaoh took, he said, Egyptian taskmasters and put them over the Israelites. And on the back of God's people, much of Egypt was built. Not the pyramids, but the great monuments in Egypt. They were built on the back of God's people. While the Pharaoh cursed and punished and cruelly treated God's people, God blessed his people. And they went from 70 in the beginning to almost a million by the time we pick up our story. 350 years they were slaves in this land. And right before we pick up our story, Pharaoh has a moment of ultimate cruelty, ultimate fear, ultimate punishment. He calls for a genocide. It's in the passages we read earlier. He says, you know what? I'm done with these people. They keep multiplying. They're a problem. They've always been a problem. And so he says, every male Hebrew child that's born, throw them in the Nile. They die. Because if you can end the male Hebrew children in a generation, you can eliminate a people. And that's where our little, our little family comes in. Her parents were named Amram, that's the dad, and Jochebed. They loved God. They walked with him. They raised their family to know him and to look for him and to listen to him, to honor him. And so far, God had given them a daughter, Miriam, and a son, Aaron. And when this new edict came down, this genocide edict from the Pharaoh, it was really personal for this little family because Jochebed was pregnant with her third child. 
and there's no ultrasound. So this sweet little family waits throughout this entire pregnancy to find out if, if it's a girl and there'll be safety on her life or whether it's a boy and there'll be a death sentence over his life. The moment who we now call Moses was born. Can you imagine that little family? Can you imagine how when you would want to celebrate the birth of a son, they grieved and, and terror and fear gripped them? Can you imagine what that felt like? This is what Hebrews 11.23 says. It says, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Why were they not afraid? We don't know whether, was it great faith? Did they just believe they'd seen God do great before, be faithful before, and so they leaned into that? For whatever reason, they chose to trust and lean into God in the midst of this huge fear and despair. For three months, they hide, they hide this little boy. Can you imagine trying to keep him quiet, the, the older and the bigger that he got? For three months, their family was at risk. And for three months, honestly, their neighbors would have been at risk. If this had been found out, Pharaoh would have just wiped them out. And then that time came. I think probably Amram had to say to Jochebed, Honey, we, we cannot keep this baby here any longer. We're, we're endangering an entire neighborhood of people. And so very likely, Jochebed was joined by Miriam, her daughter, and they wove together a papyrus basket made of reeds, and they put tar and pitch on the inside to make it waterproof. And they laid this little boy, they, Jochebed laid her son in this basket, and they put a lid on it. So technically, she was doing what the Pharaoh said. They took this little basket with her child in it, and they, and they, carefully put it in the reeds along the, the side of the Nile. And I believe that they used all the wisdom and all the prayer and all the faithfulness that they could muster because I believe that Amram had to probably physically take his wife and say, we cannot stay here. Because the scripture says that Miriam was left to watch what happened to the little boy. Well, they had used God's wisdom because they had placed the little basket near um, the, the uh, watering place where the Pharaoh's daughter and the royalty would come down to bathe. And sure enough, as, as Miriam looked on, the, the Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket and the reason. She says to her attendant, go, go get that. And, and they bring the basket over and it says that the Pharaoh's daughter herself lifts up the cover of the basket. And, and Moses, now that we call him Moses, was crying and she said, this is one of the Hebrew babies. Now, In this moment, we see a little faithfulness of this young girl. Miriam would have been young, maybe only 10, maybe less. And so kids, if you're watching, know that God wants to use you now, not when you're old adult people. Now, a little faithfulness by Miriam. And she goes up to the Pharaoh's daughter and she says this. Then his sister, Miriam, asked Pharaoh's daughter, uh, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? That's Exodus 2, 7. In a beautiful turn of events that only God could orchestrate, the Pharaoh's daughter defies the Pharaoh who would put a death sentence on this little boy 
adopts him and says to Miriam, yes, yes, go get, go get a Hebrew woman and, and she can nurse him and I'll pay her. Only God turns events like that. And so Moses goes back to his mother who Miriam had run to get. And he's raised in his formative years, a lot of scholars believe for nine or 10 years in a home where he's taught about the history of his people, the one true God, he's taught to love him and know him and honor him and follow him. Friends, the first little tiny faithfulness we see in Miriam is that she heard the word of God and she let it change her behaviors and her will. She didn't just believe it. She let it change her behaviors and her will and her day-to-day moments. This young girl had the courage to go up to Pharaoh's daughter, believing that God was with her. Well, we're also doing God stories in this series, stories of individuals and people in our, in our midst. And um, I want to stop for a second and share a God story with you. It's a friend of mine, Jenny. Jenny and I actually were in the same dorm at Chapel Hill. I was on the fourth floor. She was on the first floor. And even better, we both came to understand who Jesus was and began to follow him as freshmen, the same, same time in our fall freshman year. So here uh, Jenny's God story. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Lake Forest. Um, my name is Jenny Brown, and I have been a ministry partner since about 2002. Holly asked me to share my God story. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about the last 10 or so years for me um, and tell you how I got from being a stay-at-home mom to a school teacher in a high-poverty school. I was, um, in the early 2000s, I was at home. I was a stay-at-home mom. I was doing Bible study. And um, I began to notice that there were certain scriptures that bothered me. They um, made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. And it was scriptures that talked about God's heart for the poor and his um, expectation that we, as his children, should care for the poor. And I just felt like, I wasn't doing enough. My husband and I have always given um, money to help out charities that were working with the poor, but I felt like God's word was leading me to have more involvement. So um, I prayed. I said, God, um, what, what would you have me do? And I got nothing. So um, I'm a firm believer that when God wants you to move, he will make it clear to you. So I just kept doing the things I was doing. I kept raising my kids, being a stay-at-home mom, and doing Bible study. Um, I kind of added into that, I began to to read some about poverty and try to learn more about it. I read um, things written by, from a Christian perspective, and uh, things that weren't written from a Christian perspective. and I began to investigate some ways to, to volunteer in, um, in organizations and in ministries that were working among the poor. And so I began to take my kids and we would go to crisis assistance and work in their clothing ministry. And we did that for a few years. Um, in probably about 2010, um, my youngest, William, started kindergarten. And that was a turning point for me. Because when he went back to kindergarten, or when he went to kindergarten, 
um, I went back to volunteering in school, except I did not volunteer at his school. Um, I chose to volunteer in a Title I school. Title I schools in CMS are schools that have 75% of their students in poverty. And so I just went on Google and figured out you know, what was a Title I school that was close to the north side of town, and I began to volunteer at that school. So, um, so that year, Huck or William was going to kindergarten at Torrance Creek and Huntersville, and I was volunteering at a Title I school in kindergarten. Um, it was a watershed moment for me because I was so unprepared to see how different the two schools were. They were both public schools. They were both on the north side of town. Um, but there were differences. Um, the kids that were in the Title I um, school were coming into kindergarten as lower readers than the kids in Williams School were. And, um, and the adult volunteerism was a lot less. So you had kids that needed more volunteers to work with them, and yet it was a school that had less. Um, and it broke my heart. Um, so the next year I got some other women from Lake Forest to go and help tutor at the school. Um, I kind of kept tracking along that way and eventually God poked my heart and I went back to school and got a certificate to teach. I wanted to have more impact. Um, I knew when I went back I wanted to teach in a Title I school and I was lucky enough to be hired into one. Um, I began working in a K-8 academy off of Babies Ford Road. The, that was another watershed moment for me um, because I learned so much. Um, I, for the first time in my life, was working in an environment where as a white person, I was a minority. Um, so that was kind of interesting and I began to have um, some friction and things that I just wasn't sure. I began to wonder if my race played a part in the way I was perceived um, in the way I felt in certain situations and um, I had never felt that before. Um, I learned a lot about poverty. Um, poverty is a very difficult um, to overcome. In the Charlotte area the mobility rate the, is about three um, percent. So it means very few people can easily get out of poverty. I, after a couple of years, I moved over to West Charlotte where I teach now. I teach English there. It's an awesome school. Um, I'm working every day with amazing, amazing students. But there again, the poverty there and its impact on education um, is gripping. Nothing ever happens um, in a vacuum. So um, Holly and I are talking and we talked about the fact that you can't educate kids if their basic needs aren't met. We know that statistically. If kids do not have enough food to eat, if they're hungry, if they don't have a place to sleep and a place to stay, that, that lodging's not stable, um, it makes it difficult for them to learn, and if they don't feel safe. And you can, in poverty, you can go very quickly from having all three of those things met to them just being wiped away. Um, and nothing happens by itself. So there's just lots of obstacles there. Um, Holly asked me, she said, Jenny, do you ever feel um, ill-equipped or like the job is too big? And I laughed. I said, every day. Every single day the job is too big. Um, but I know because of my years in Scripture that when God calls us 
to do something, he equips us. Um, even if we don't feel like equipped, even if the problem is much bigger than us, um, even if there's more that can be done in a physical day. And so when I go in to work and, and I face all that stuff that's so overwhelming, um, I rest in the fact that he is equipping me. And whatever I bring to the table, if you add that to who he is, and his sovereignty and his mind, then that's enough. It's enough for the day, and it's enough for him. Jenny, thank you so much for sharing your story and um, and, and God's movement in your story. Um, I love so much about Jenny's story that she didn't just believe as in, you know, agree with her mind. I love that she allowed God's word um, to bend her behaviors and her will and how she lived. I love that that you let God's word change you, Jenny, That and then you prayed and then you waited. And then you took a small step of obedience and continued to pray, and then you waited. And then God said, now, and you were prepared and ready. I think based on Jenny's story in our congregation and in Miriam's first little act of faithfulness there that, that literally saved Moses, I think God might say to us, are my eyes open to how God might be shaping my story right now? It, are my eyes open? Is my heart listening? Am I actually reading God's word and asking him to bend my behaviors and will? Well, buckle up because I'm about to tear through the most um, amazing story in the Old Testament, the most amazing rescue in the Old Testament. And if you get frustrated, maybe that's a great motivation to go back and read Exodus this week. So much beauty there. But I want to race to the next point of Miriam's faithfulness. So Miriam and her family, they waited too. As a matter of fact, Moses, they did take him to live in the palace. He lived and grew up in the palace until he was 40. And then in his passion to be God's servant, he, he got ahead of God and he had to flee Egypt. And he was gone from Egypt in a place called Midian for another 40 years. So Miriam at this point is, is above 80 years old and she knows that she knows who Moses is. She believes that God was calling him to rescue her people. And yet they waited and they prayed and they prayed and they waited until the turning point. This is Exodus 3, 7. It says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. We have a God that sees. I have heard them crying out to me of their from their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. We have a God that sees. We have a God that hears our cries to him. And we have a God whose heart bends for the suffering of his people. And so God miraculously calls Moses, who's now himself 80-something years old, and, and he calls him back to Egypt. And here's the blitz story, right? Through a miraculous series of events, a, a series of miracles, God says to the entire Egyptian nation, he says, the Nile is not a God. These animals are not a God. Pharaoh, you are not a God. I am the one true God. And in the end, Pharaoh's will breaks. And now a million plus Israelites, this Hebrew family that's now a nation, is, is let le they're let to leave Egypt. And, and they're making their way, led by Moses and Aaron and Miriam. 
and they're making their way and, and they're traveling in this enormous crowd, surely, slowly being God, guided by God and they come to camp at the edge of the Red Sea. And friends, I believe that they probably heard it before they saw it. That they heard the hardness of Pharaoh's heart that it had, had raised up his army. It said 600 of his best chariots and then every other chariot in Egypt, horsemen, foot soldiers, the mighty Egyptian military trained, powerful army. I believe they heard it tearing after them first. And then you can see forever across the desert. And I believe this, the, this people, this untrained, unarmed people looked up, having tasted freedom just for a second, and they looked up and they saw the mighty power of Egypt bearing down on them. And they literally look at Moses in terror and fear and say, seriously, you brought us out here in the desert to die? We would rather have been slaves in Egypt than to die and be slaughtered as a nation in, in the desert. Moses turns to God and he prays. And then he turns to the people and he says this beautiful thing. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And this nation of Israel then sees the God of all creation use creation, which he spoke into being in the beginning, to blow back the waters of the Red Sea. The God of creation uses creation to put a barrier, a darkness, a cloud in front of the Egyptian army. And while they're confused and stranded there, not sure what to do, God's people walked through the Red Sea. And when they had just gotten to safety, they turned around as a nation and, and God lifted creation and the Egyptians in anger and, and furious temper race into the middle of the Red Sea to come and slaughter this people. And the God of all creation releases his creation back and they're destroyed. And this is the second moment of Miriam's faithfulness. Can you imagine the horror in the silence, in the awe. The people of Israel had just watched the ultimate power and faithfulness of their God to save and rescue and see and deliver them, to bring them to safety, to be good to his word. And there they were. This is what the scripture says in Exodus fifteen twenty. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel, a tambourine, in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam saw the moment and, and understood it for what it was, that God had just done something beautiful. And that in response to that, the people needed to praise him and celebrate and dance and sing and rejoice all to his glory. It says that Moses and Miriam sang a song of praise to God and that Miriam, she marked the moment of God's faithfulness. She marked the moment through prophetic words and praise to the one true God. She said, this needs to be marked. This needs to be seen. This needs to be remembered. She called the people to mark the moment of God's faithfulness. And she led them in that way. Friends, we're in a time where it's easy it's easy, it's effortless to focus on what is not right. 
right now. It, we are literally surrounded in our world right now from every angle with grumbling and complaining and divisiveness and despairing and arguing. We are literally being fed that by the world. But what if God is asking us to follow Miriam's example and to mark not the despair and the divisiveness and the brokenness and the, and the grumbling, but to mark that God is doing good. That God is still faithful and moving and active and bringing love and justice in this world. Where are our eyes as God's people right now? What is our voice saying in this world right now? I think Miriam would say, God needs a people who are speaking of God's hope. God's faithfulness, God's justice, God's love. And he needs a people that are marking it and calling it out and speaking of it together as the people of God. So I think Miriam would say, what is your voice leading others to do right now? Complain in bitter despair? Or speaking of hope and unity and belief and justice? Well, I kind of wish Miriam's story ended there, but it didn't. Um, actually, Miriam has a low point in her story that I want to share with you. And this is why. You can find it in Numbers 12, the book of Numbers, chapter 12. This is why I want to share this with you. We're talking about the small faithfulness of ordinary people and how God has used them in his story and will use them in his story until Jesus comes back. But these are not perfect people. As a matter of fact, I really appreciate the fact that God shows us people's failings in the scriptures because it makes me feel a whole lot better about my broken spaces. So let me tell you the story of Miriam. Briefly, she and Aaron, after years and years of traveling in the desert, and it's hard, and it's hot, and there's a lot of people and a lot of opinions. And guess what? Don't forget that Miriam and Aaron and Moses are siblings. They're family. And, and, and where is it most often that we tend to turn and go, you know what? That is getting on my nerves, right? Family. And at one point, Miriam and Aaron together begin to grumble and complain about Moses' leadership. But God would have none of it. He called Moses, God called Moses and Aaron and Miriam to himself, and he said, how dare you speak against my anointed? And he actually causes Miriam to have leprosy to, to appear on her skin instantly. And Aaron looks at her and literally is horrified at the punishment that God has brought down on Miriam because of Aaron and Miriam's sin of, of complaining and griping against Moses. And Aaron says, Moses, please pray for her. And so Moses is faithful to do that. God does extend her punishment, but then brings her back into the fold. And so why would I share that? Why, why share that story? Number one, um, these are not perfect people. And number two, God wants to use our broken spaces in his story too. God wants to use our broken spaces in his story too. God is the great healer who he takes ordinary people and brings beauty out of brokenness, all for his glory. I get a question a lot, and I wanted to end with this. I get a question, and I got this question yesterday, actually. Um, people will say, 
I came from a really broken home. Or before I knew God, I mean, I was, I was like really off track, like way messed up and not right. Like I made, like I can't, mm, we didn't even talk about that, right? Can God still use a person like me? Or is he done with me? Is he going to punish me for the rest of my life? And I want to answer that by saying the answer is hidden right in the Ten Commandments that these same people received from God. It's the second commandment. And here's where it's hidden right in there. It says, for those who hate me, God says, for those who hate me. In other words, for those who ignore me and and don't follow me and don't want me to lead their life, I will let the sins of the fathers, the brokenness of families, roll down through families because I'm not there to stop it. I'm not there to protect it. I'm not there to heal it. But then it says, but for those that love me, for those that say, Jesus, I do need a leader and it's not me. And so I'm asking you to come into my life. He will, Jesus will break into your life and he will begin to take the broken spaces from your family, from your own mistakes and heal them and make them new. And and he will take both your giftedness and your broken spaces and he will ask you to be faithful and he will use you in the unfolding of his story in this world. I told that example to, um, to a friend one day and she actually sings in the circle with us um, and she made this out of guitar strings. I wonder if I'll walk up here a little closer. So this is the tree, family tree, and this shoot right here, this green shoot, is Jesus's intervention to start a new branch and a new way and a new hope and a new life. Friends, I think Miriam would would have us, um, as we reflect on her life, she would have us say, am I paying attention to what God might be writing in my life right now? Am I letting God's word um, bend my will and my behaviors to his glory? And then she would say, we need to be a people who are celebrating the goodness of our God, the involvement of our God, the faithfulness of our God, with our voices, especially in the world today. And then I think she would say, and you know what? (laughs) He will take your broken spaces and he will heal them and remake them until the day that you go to see him. And then it will be complete. Yes, God uses ordinary people and tiny faithfulnesses in in his story. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave us examples of not perfect people, but people that wanted to be used by you. Lord Jesus, please help us to lean in and listen for what you might be writing in our lives right now, and then to have the courage to wait and pray and wait and pray and pursue that. Lord, help us to have voices that are pointing others in this world right now to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.